before we get into the thick of the episode. I have a few housekeeping items to tell you. You can contact me at bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. I'd really like to hear from you. Just your thoughts, any questions you have, any help you might need. I'm an open book and I try to keep up on that email. Give me some feedback there. You can also follow me on Instagram at bestowingthebrush, all one word, on Instagram. That is really the visual companion to this podcast. I try to feature little snippets of information from each episode and do a helpful visual with each. Look forward to that if you're on that platform as well. It's really, really nice because art and drawing really are visual. So speaking of Instagram, on January 26th at 10 o'clock Central Time, I'm going to go live on Instagram and go through and walk you through my first year of nature journaling. It's my nature notebook, my nature journal, whatever you want to call it. It's both. It's sketches and a narrative of um, my experience in nature and documenting nature this last year. It has been very fun to look back on that and to see how I've improved in my sketching, how I've improved in seeing, and so many side benefits to doing that that I was not expecting. And I'm going to love sharing that with you all. So please tune into that if you have that app on your phone and you want to see that. I can't wait to see you there. Well, welcome to Bestowing the Brush. I am Dallas Noctegall. I'm your host. And this is the podcast that hopefully motivates both teachers and students of art to keep drawing and improving their skills. I, here on the show, stick to a Charlotte Mason method and philosophy of education. And so I just can't wait to see what a generation of children feasting on worthy ideas will do for our culture in thought, innovation, and art. This is my first time having someone in the room here with me. I have a friend. This is Cody Wheelock. Hi, Dallas. Go ahead and say hi. Hi, Dallas. How's Hello. it going? Good. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, this is fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks for complimenting my super official <laughs> studio setup here. It's very zen. I like it. How long have we known each other? Have we known each other for well, four, four years? Yeah. Abouts? Yeah. Okay. I suppose we've been at uh, OBC for about three or four years. Okay. So, yeah. Then our prior experience at UNL. Okay, yes. At Sheldon. So, the, yeah, the first time we met, we were both student docents at the Sheldon Art Museum down in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a fun experience. Did you do it for a year or two or Two so? years, I think. Two years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you were in the program longer than I was then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. What did you like about it most? Uh, well, I, I really, really just enjoy teaching in general. And so I love to be able to, um, maybe share some facts about things that people didn't already know. I think that when you're talking about an art museum, a lot of times people come into art museums with preconceived notions, especially if you, if you're not a common visitor to an art museum and at UNL, as you know, there were a lot of groups with student groups and people coming Mm -hmm. in that weren't necessarily your everyday museum art museum goer so 
you could tell sometimes when you would start a, a tour and you get some eye rolls, some, you know, college students that are like, really, we have to be here doing this. You know, like my grad student teacher is making me, uh, <laughs> making me go to the museum. So it was kind of fun to try and, um, um, put your own spin on each little room and talk about the pieces and, uh, hopefully make it kind of entertaining while you're also teaching them something. And most of the time people would come around and Ask mm-hmm. questions, you know. Every once in a while, you get the awkward like silence, as I'm sure you experience too. But silence uh, is okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe about four years or so. Well, I mean, really longer than that, but really four years. Right. Yeah. We've gotten to know each other, and our spouses know each other. Mm-hmm. And I love his wife, Laura. Hi, Laura, if you're <laughs> listening. You currently work at a private school here in Omaha, Brownell Talbot. That is correct. And. So tell us a little bit about that. Brownell, it's a private uh, college preparatory school here in Omaha, and we have students preschool through 12th grade. Small school, so pre-K through 12, we've only got about 430 or so students. And only in the high school, only about 150 or so. So it's it's uh, pretty small compared oh, wow. to other I schools in Omaha. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so each graduating yeah. class has a roughly 30 kids in it. Wow. Yeah, okay. So... A little different than, uh, you know, some of these class A schools in Omaha that have, mm-hmm. you know, a thousand kids or 800 kids in a graduating yeah. class. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's fun. We, uh, my kids go there my two kids, uh, mm-hmm. Alana and Asher, five and three. And so it's fun to be able to take them to school with me every day. And I can, if I want to go down and have lunch with them, I can. Oh, that's so and nice. It's a lot of fun. So I'm in charge of the, uh, art, uh, visual art courses for seventh through 12th grade. So, being a small independent private school, we're not obligated to follow all of the state standards and restrictions and things that public schools have to follow. So it allows me to have a lot of freedom. And one of the big reasons why I wanted to work there was because they gave me the ability to create my own curriculum. So I was able to, from scratch, reconfigure the whole 7th through 12th grade curriculum and uh, it's been a lot of fun. The kids there are really great. They are hard workers. They're all very um, intense, and uh, but in a good way most of the time, where <laughs> they um, are all trying to get into Ivy League type colleges. So, out of uh, a, a you know my average class size is between seven and twelve students. So very small classes. Almost, I mean, there's almost no behavior issues whatsoever. That's how those experiences have been a little bit different for you. Yeah, big difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you kind of, did you make a ton of big changes when you came in to the curriculum? Yeah, I know. That's a good question. So um, when I got there, the teacher that was there before me, what I would say is a little bit more of what you would see a typical art instructor be at a kind of a standard high school setting. So they did lots of different projects, tried lots of different mediums and stuff, which is, there's nothing wrong with that at all, but nothing was really, nothing connected. One thing didn't connect to the next thing. There wasn't a lot of sequencing that was going on. There wasn't a lot of structure to it. It was just, so it was, it was interesting. Um, not but, under your watch anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I made some changes after the first year. And, to, okay. uh, and not to say that the things that I did are anything better than what anyone else does, but it just worked better for me to make those changes. Mm-hmm. Well, neat. Okay, and so you also run a small studio out of your home. I do. This is called Omaha Atelier of Fine Art, yep. 
which was founded um, two years ago. Technically, about April or May. April is of 2018 is when oh, okay. my first wow. event. Yeah. You're so fresh. Yeah, it's about just about a year ago at this time. Grown. I was putting it all together. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so I kind of want you to explain the atelier sure. and tell me if I'm t- if I'm saying yep, it correctly. Yep, that's right. Atelier. Exactly right. Yep. Um, what is the history of that, and how do you take those ideas and implement them in modernity? Sure. Yeah. So this term atelier is kind of a new one to uh, people today, uh, whereas 100 years ago, 150 years ago, it would have been a really well-known term especially in Europe. So atelier is a French term that means studio or workshop. So a lot of times it would be the studio or workshop of a designer or a creative type person, an artisan, could be a blacksmith, could be a woodworker, could be someone who designs clothes, um, but someone who does something that's, you know, would be considered creative. Uh, And their studio was called an, an atelier. And a lot of times you would have the owner or quote unquote master of the studio who would be kind of the um, the expert if you will and then uh, usually they would do all of their own work there but then they would also have a number of students that would work with them and so it was almost sort of sort of like an apprenticeship where you'd have a number of students that they would kind of help the lead the owner of the atelier um, with tasks, but then they would also get an education where the, the master would kind of teach them and pass on the things that they've learned. And, uh, and so, uh, as, and it happened for, for centuries, uh, and that's kind of how artists and whatnot were trained. In the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, the academies came along, and so you had the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in uh, Paris, so the big state-sponsored art academies. And so you'd have a bunch of students that would um, get accepted into those. And so they would go get their formal academic art training through the academy, which was really tough. And then they would, um, in the evenings, oftentimes go to a atelier. So a, wow. a kind of a studio on the side to get more work. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the, the curriculums in, in them were fairly standard. Um, they you know, differed a little bit from studio to studio depending on who the master artist was and what they did, what their style was. But students would generally kind of follow the same sequence of, um, of tasks and, and build skill very sequentially. So it was extremely structured. Students would often learn fundamentals of drawing first. They would move on and do some master copies. Um, they would do copies from uh, what are called barg plates, which are... Um, special plates in a drawing course put together by a guy named Charles Barg. They would move on and do cast drawing. They'd work with charcoal. They would um, start using oil paint and they'd learn how to make their own paint. And then they would do uh, grisaille, which means grayscale oil painting. And they would move on to cast painting. So um, by cast, I mean like a plaster cast of a a statue from antiquity. A three-dimensional one. Right, a three-dimensional one. Uh, because um, artists thought that the ancient Greeks and Romans had very good taste, and they thought that they, um, um, you know, the way that they took the most complex, one of the most complex things on earth, the human form, and idealized it and mm-hmm. um, created masterpieces out of it, they thought that by having students copy those and use those as drawing aids, they would be transferring some of that 
that taste and that those ideas from mm-hmm. antiquity onto the student and kind of refining their palate, if you will, for sure. what good art looks like. Um, but casts were really a practical way to study too, because uh, you wouldn't you didn't have to actually go to the original Greek sculpture to study it. You had yeah. a plaster copy of it. <clears throat> casts were really good because they would um, they're white. So when you shine a line on them, there's no color involved. So mm-hmm. it kind of eliminates a big stumbling block. You just have to worry about values and structure and mm-hmm. the drawing part of things. Um, and it was a really good um, transition from doing master copies of drawings that are monotone on a 2D surface. So you're looking at a 2D image, copying it onto a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Now uh, with the cast, it's almost like those... 2D drawings have come to life now and they're mm-hmm. sitting in front of you, but they're three dimensional. So now your brain is having to take something that's three dimensional, but still simple. Mm-hmm. You know, a plaster, you know, those ancient Greeks, they were really good at simplifying the human form down. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't include every single tiny strand of hair or anything like that. They simplified it. And so you would, you know, draw that. And so you're kind of, you're making a jump, but it's not a huge jump. It's a very calculated, intentional step up and challenge, but it's not too much. Uh, and then um, this whole this whole system and curriculum was designed that way, so students are constantly moving up to the next level, and uh, but they're being challenged in you know what I would call the sweet spot. So they're not being under challenged. So it's not like they you know they they wouldn't be able to just sit back and if if they got really good at uh, whatever level they were on, then they were immediately bumped up to the next level. So they were challenged. And then if they showed proficiency at that, then they'd bump up to the next one. But the artists would also make sure that they didn't overwhelm the students as well. So mm-hmm. they would make sure you didn't give a student something so complex that they would just massively fail at it. You know, failure is a good thing, but... Not to the point totally of discouragement. Exactly. Of, yeah. I can't do this anymore. Exactly. And I'm a failure. Yeah. And so <laughs> these little steps would build confidence, too, because you'd see yeah. results. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a reason why so many amazing artists came out of the, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries is because they went through this kind of system that gave them skill and built skill. And the whole idea was we're going to teach you how to draw and paint. We're going to study the human figure. We're going to do all this. And we're going to basically mold you into someone who can execute a really complex painting at a very high level. And then from there... You're on your own. And then from there, that then get creative with it. What can you do with it? You know, tell now a story. Now you have the foundation. Tell, yeah, exactly. Okay. A lot of the criticism with this type of method that you hear sometimes today, today is people say, well, it's too rigid. There's no creativity in it. Which uh, is true in the beginning stages especially. There's not a lot of creativity. It's here's this. So you're going to copy this. And it should look exactly this way. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how it's going to be. And, uh, and so there was no choices to be made, not really, no, no creativity, but the whole idea was to give you the, the skill set first and then give you, that way you have a full array of tools to be creative and you're not limited at all. Mm-hmm. I think that one thing that a lot of people do today, instructors in art education, is mainstream art education is they will tell people, uh, we want you to be super creative, we want you to be super outside the box and just go for it. And so kids do, and adults and you know anyone does but the problem is they don't have the skills to back it up and so they fail sure. and they get you know everyone everyone's self-conscious about about it and they don't want to be told that they don't want to be laughed at they don't want to be if you're a mm-hmm. kid you don't want to be told that your drawing looks terrible yeah 
and uh, and so people get discouraged and they think that people either have a special gene for art and sure. some people can just do it and some people can't and what they don't realize is that no you know anyone can get really good at drawing painting that type of thing they just uh you have to you have to do it in the right way sure so which is what, what I'm I, hearing you say is kind of like okay walk into this area and build a house and mm-hmm. you're not given any tools mm-hmm. that's kind of yeah absolutely how I see it absolutely yeah I think that um you know I, I've had a lot of students here where I've implemented this style trying to work within the school system that mm-hmm. we have today it can be difficult to sometimes do some of this which is predicated on having the time to do it sure but then also one of the reasons why this method was so successful is because it was so individualized. So Yes, that was my next question. Because yes. everyone works at different paces. Yeah. And people come in with different experiences and skill sets. So one mistake that I think a lot of instructors do is they have the whole class move at the same mm. speed yeah. through a curriculum, whereas it would be much more effective to have... Um, some student, you know, if everyone was kind of along their own path and things were, so like when I work with my private students, everyone follows the same curriculum, but it's tweaked slightly for each student, depending on where they're at. Um, and students don't move on to the next thing until they've shown proficiency at their current, whatever the current assignment is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just being straightforward with them at the beginning of the process and saying, look, if you and I both don't feel like your piece that your drawing just did is at a certain level of proficiency when compared to the standard, which is whatever you're drawing, you know, because we're dealing with representational art. So we've got a standard, right? If there's a person sitting in front of us that we're drawing, there's a standard that we can measure ourselves against. Um, Then, you know, we're going to try it again, you know, and in this, you, you teach, students not to not be afraid of failure you know failure Mm -hmm. is fine it's how you learn how to get better and i think that the school system today you know Mm. kids are so afraid of failing that you know they're not willing to take risks and try new things through this method i've you know some of my teen students um you know they've been able to accomplish things that that they never thought was possible they didn't think they could draw that well you know and it's nothing that i'm doing it's just it's just encouraging them and showing them a certain method of doing things and then it's teaching them to be resilient and if you fail go back and try it again and it's fine you know i'm not, I'm not going to downgrade you for failing like that's yeah i'm not going to do it and you know they start to make a little bit of progress and they see they start to get confidence because they see results and then i find that students when they or their friends come in and see what they're doing and their friends go nuts and, oh my gosh i didn't know you're <laughs> such an artist that type of thing then i see the confidence go way up Mm-hmm. And then it's, then I can't keep them out of the art room, you know, wow. they want to just be in there all the time working on stuff. So yeah, it's a lot of fun and I, uh, I really in, enjoy it. It's one of the, um, most rewarding things about teaching is getting to see yeah. the light bulb come on and see the confidence rise and mm-hmm. how many kids out there today could use more confidence and, you know, I mean, yeah, I yeah. Think it's, it's, it's try, try again. Thing. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you see as most useful in the failure and picking yourself back up again category? Mm. Do you do ask them to do some short sketches mm-hmm. and do like rapid fire things and help them to realize that they can just try again? Yeah. So like um, 
when we're doing some of the uh, bigger assignments, so one of the things I do is we don't use, I don't have them use a lot of really high-end paper, canvas, stuff like that at the beginning, because I, I kind of emphasize to them, look, the goal is to not do this little egg painting exercise and and frame it and it's a masterpiece. You yes. know, that's not the goal. This is an exercise. It's uh -huh. an activity we're practicing. Um, and so I tried to uh, um, show them and I, I tried to show them or tell them examples of when, you know, I've done something and it doesn't work out. You toss it and try it again. You know, mm -hmm. like it's not that big of a deal. It's not precious. It's mm -hmm. just pigment smeared around on a canvas. It's mm -hmm. not that big of a deal. If you do it once, you can do it again. Um, and then when, when they get into more complex um, pieces that they're working on, uh, I try to emphasize the this idea of prep, prep work, all the preparatory work. So um, that's why you do sketches and you do these little things called poster studies, which are like little two by three inch color studies and oil paint of what it might look like. And, you know, I tell them the importance of keeping a sketchbook and, you know, mm. this is where you're supposed to fail and practice. And, you, yeah. know, you know, when you see the end product of an artist's work you know this gorgeous sculpture painting whatever it is drawing you know you don't what you don't see is all the failures and everything that led up to that but the yeah. reason that the, that person was able to accomplish this great thing you know think about a pianist that's playing this amazing piece in a concert and they don't have any sheet music and they're just nailing it you know and you're sitting there in the audience thinking how on earth is this person must be an alien or something you know it's just ridiculous but <laughs> <clears throat> Truth be told, they've spent hours and hours and hours rehearsing and yeah. you know, memorizing and all of that, you know, but you don't see it. So I try to make yeah. sure the students understand that. It's a great analogy to draw you know, to them. Yeah. And I really like using musical analogies with students because I don't know why, but there's this gap between music and art where I think that in schools and just in general, people take music a lot more seriously, mm -hmm. which really art training used to be exactly the same as music. Yeah. With music. Uh, piano lessons when you sit down to play a piece on the piano you can't just sit down and play a masterpiece you got to learn you got to learn your scales first yeah Are the scales fun no you know, <laughs> no one doesn't like to sit down and just do scales for a half hour but yeah. you have to do it because you gain the skills and then you move on to something slightly more complicated and then more complicated until you can play mary had a little lamb you know and you barely can play it and then you play it for a while and then you can be creative with it and add emotion to it right mm -hmm. so it's the same thing with art and drawing and painting and you got to learn all that fundamental stuff first and then once you got the hang of it then you can go be creative with it and express mm -hmm. yourself however you want through yeah. it so uh, i find when you use musical analogies kids seem to get that a little bit better mm -hmm. like oh i guess that kind of makes sense sure well yeah. we've just been inundated with this idea that just take some paint and be creative well yeah you know it's easier said than done well that's awesome I like the cumulative factor that you're talking about the end and for the parent too, of here's, here's where they kind of start and here's kind of the end goal. Do mm -hmm. you, do you have that in the beginning when you're saying, here's what you could eventually be able to do? Absolutely. And I think, kind of yeah. give them that ideal and that hope to look forward to. Absolutely. I think it's really important to kind of um, put the carrot in front of them and say, look, um, this is what you could achieve. And when it's possible, I love to put a really good work by one of their peers in front of them. 
because if I show them my work, they roll their eyes and they say, oh, well, yeah, you're, you know, <laughs> you've been doing it for a long time and whatever. Uh, but if you show them another, say, well, well, this is done by a 17 year old kid that yeah. you could go talk to right now about it, you know, and then like, oh. And then if it's someone that they didn't think was quote unquote artistic to begin with, and then like, oh, well, I didn't know they could do that. <laughs> you know, maybe I can do it too. Uh, but I think it's important to, to do stuff like that so they can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and there's something we're working towards. Yeah, that I, I think is very smart. And I like the, the musical analogies when you you think of music practice. It's, you know, that person has practiced, but maybe you don't realize how much the the painter has practiced as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a fantastic book that I uh, read called The Talent Code, and it's all about the idea of practice and the importance of the importance of practice. And mm. um, it's something that people under undervalue, you know, because especially today when we live in an instant gratification society where I want the end result now. You know, one of my one of the things that I really try and do when I talk to new students is just try to get them to wrap their mind around the it's a long-term thing. You know, this is yeah. something that I tell my, I just uh, started new drawing or new painting class. Like I mentioned to you at Brownell this semester. And I said, uh, Hey guys, listen, you're not going to be, you know, masters in May. I'm sorry. I hate to break <laughs> it to you, but you're just not going to be, um, you know, your, your paintings aren't going to be going to the Louvre or anything, but uh, yeah. you will see market improvement. You're going to see, you're going to be able to achieve things that you didn't even think were possible. And as long as you buy into the process, I promise you, you're going to see results and you give the effort. Um, but it's just trying to explain that. I had a professor in college, maybe, I don't know if you ever, uh, Aaron Holtz. Oh, I was going to say yeah, Aaron. It had to be Aaron. Yeah. yeah. One thing that he uh, mentioned <laughs> that I really remember is that uh, he said that, he, I remember he told all of us one time that, look, it takes 10 years to even figure out what you want to, what you want to do you know, with your work in your own, personal in your own work, you know, practice. Yeah. Pre yeah. or like, post school. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, just expect 10 years, you know? And so I remember sitting there at that studio in college at 21 years old or whatever, 20 years old thinking, Oh, okay. You know, I feel like I kind of have a good idea now, but uh, he's absolutely right. You know, I, I, I kind of track it back and like, I'll see 10 years. Oh yeah, that's about right. You know, that's yeah. I feel pretty pretty settled in my style and stuff like that. Okay. And I know it will continue to evolve. Oh, as for you do sure. It. But uh, yeah, I think he was right on the money. So wow, people don't really so, want to hear that today. But oh no, no, you want to be great at something right away. And what's the use if you're not right? So when you look back on some of your previous work, that would be like post school when mm -hmm. you're in that intermediate area of finding your style. Do you cringe. <laughs> Or a little you, bit, yeah. Or are you just okay with letting it be there and just thinking, hey, I've learned a lot since then? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm okay with letting it be there. I mean, it's not something that I, you know, I'm going to be posting on my Instagram account anytime <laughs> soon. But, you know, you got to do that stuff before you can do what you do now, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember, uh, so I do a lot of plein air painting. I really enjoy landscape painting and getting outside and doing oil painting outside and 
I remember at UNL uh, when we were there, and I can't remember which professor it was, but they were talking about plein air painting. And so I just thought to myself, oh, that sounds kind of fun. So I remember taking like a 30 by 40 inch stretch canvas, one of those like three-legged easels and stuff. I went out to Pioneers Park <laughs> and I had like a backpack and like my big glass like palette thing oh, that they had at you UNL. Oh, you that out. Those. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, it was just ridiculous. The canvas flew off the easel. <laughs> it was windy, you know, so you've got the, sa- it's basically a sail is what it is. Yeah, it catches and, the yeah, wind and takes off. flying off and it was just horrible. I can get any, anything worthwhile done. Felt like a complete idiot. So I always tell that when I do a player <laughs> workshop to let them know that, you know, however you think this is going to go, it's going to go better than that. So, yeah. Yeah. You're out here in the elements and nature has its own. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, setbacks or challenges, maybe. I thought we could switch gears here a little bit. Sure. I was recently reading here in John Ruskin, The Laws of Fiesta where he is describing the differences between a pencil and a paintbrush. Hmm. So he's trying to clarify his use of these terms. So he says, in all classical English writing on art, the word pencil, in all classical French writing, the word pinceau, and in all classical Italian writing, the word penello, means the painter's instrument, the brush. It is entirely desirable to return in England to this classical use with constant accuracy and resolutely to call the black lead pencil the lead crayon or, for shortness, simply the lead. In this book, I shall generally so call it, saying, for instance, in the case of this diagram, draw it first with the lead. So he kind of goes on to say here, kind of gives like the derivative of the word of penicillum, which originally meant little tail, as of the ermine. I just wanted to know what your take was on that, and have some people confused pencil with brush, in things, I don't know how that could have been interpreted differently in art books or instruction books along the way, sure. or, if, or if I'm off base. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating, especially when you read these older texts, because, you know, I think it's important to always read things in context, right? Reading that kind of definition of terms is really interesting to me, because um, it's very possible, you know, back back when this text was written, it might have been fairly common knowledge that this is what you call this and this is what you call this and that's just how it works whereas if you use some of those terms today you might get some confusion right mm-hmm. because as 20 Americans in 2019 we probably mm-hmm. aren't used to some of those terms you know calling a pencil just the lead you know mm-hmm. well I, you know you might be able to figure it out but yeah or you know if you say the take the stick. yeah the graphite <laughs> stick or take the crayon you know people are going to go looking for yeah. a Crayola crayon sure. right? yeah that has a connotation uh, but that similarity between and kind of the interchangeable nature of the pencil versus the brush mm-hmm. is interesting. And it kind of goes into the, what, what's the connection between drawing and yes. painting. I'd love to discuss that. What yeah. are your thoughts? I think drawing is, is the foundation of everything. I think it's extremely important. Uh, I, f- I find it pretty fascinating that a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, everyone learned how to draw, even in, um, Every, everyone learned how to draw. You know, it doesn't matter what your family did or what you were going to go into or whatnot. It was just a common thing that, that people understood the value of learning to see and learning to draw and capture the their environment and the things around them through lines, you know. And drawing is really just simply mark making, right? You're making marks. When you're talking about the atelier tradition, which is kind of 
it's it's mark making, but it's just accurate mark making. Making so it's it's a um, a large emphasis on making sure that you're putting the marks in the correct spot. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about painting, and painting's not that much different. It, you know, when you're making a mark with a paintbrush, it's mark making, right? You're doing the same type of thing. So I I definitely think that there's a lot of commonality between drawing and painting, and they're very they can be very interchangeable. Um, they each have their own characteristics, of course, that kind of make them unique. But um, I, you know, I tell my students all the time that if our standard is represent, you know, if we're working representationally, where I'm trying to draw what is or paint what's actually in front of me, if you can't draw well and, and accurately place your marks, you're just not going to be able to paint very well, you know. Mm. And so um, that's why in the academies and the ateliers, such a you you, you spent. two or three years just drawing before you were allowed to hold a paintbrush 40 50 60 hours a week just drawing and honing those skills Uh, and then when you got into painting everything was so much easier and um, you know it's hard to do that today you're not going to find a ton of people Mm. who can just spend 50 hours a week for two years drawing you know but yeah um, that concept I think still holds true of, of for me anyway focusing on the drawing side of things transitioning into painting you know, I think both both can be really expressive. I think that painting uh, might hold a little bit of an edge, and it has throughout history. You know, I mean, you go into any big art museum and you see lots of paintings. You don't see lots of drawings. Part of that is because they um, are a little more durable on... More uh, archival. <laughs> yeah, more archival and all of that. But um, there's something about color and being able to manipulate the edge work and the brush work and the texture that you get with painting sometimes that... Mm-hmm strikes a certain aesthetic chord with us that drawing in a way that drawing doesn't always do mm-hmm. um, but I, they probably have more in common than they do separate yeah so you see drawing as foundational i do absolutely yeah. and especially in painting mm-hmm. and i always think about architecture oh, sure. and building and construction absolutely and well back in the day the, all of those people were all grouped together you yeah. know if you're going to be an architect you went and learned how to draw extremely well with yeah. all the artists. You yeah. know? It's funny that now uh, people um, put architects in this like lofty, you know, <laughs> oh, you're going to go into engineering and architecture and mm. oh, you're going to be an artist, you know, good luck with that. Uh, now, granted, you know, <laughs> probably going to have a little bit more stable job, a little pay, maybe paid a little bit more as an yeah. architect, but it's not that much different. It's, it's a similar skill set. It's mm. a similar amount of time you've spent honing your craft and understanding how to see and how to re-represent and imagine and taking your imagination to the page. Yeah. Kind of along those lines, the imagination and how we're developing our beauty sense, Mm -hmm. what do you see as the most important things that we can do to develop the the beauty sense and where that really comes from? Sure. Well, when you talk about where this idea of beauty sense comes from, I think it really depends on your kind of the lens that you view the world through. You know, for myself, uh, being a Christian, I look at it through a Christian, the lens of, of a Christian worldview. So for me, it, it, it's an easy answer that our beauty sense comes from our ultimate maker, you know, our creator. It comes from God. We're made, the Bible says we're made in his image. And he's the ultimate artist, the ultimate creator. And uh, and so, you know, to me it's so obvious 
You know, I mean, why why do people have a natural urge to create things and make things? And why why when you are standing on the edge of a uh, the ocean or a lake or something like that, and there's this gorgeous sunset? I mean, there are certain things that you look at and you say, how could anyone say that this is not yeah. beautiful? You know, it's just there's something intrinsic about it that's mm-hmm. beautiful that strikes an aesthetic chord within your brain. And something happens where we're just wired to understand beauty in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, someone who, do, who doesn't follow that worldview may say it has something to do with evolution and that type of thing. But, you know, you think about it, evolution is kind of a, you know, may the fittest survive, you know? And so it's like, where does beauty fit in with that? You know, you just mm-hmm. go kill your neighbor if you think your neighbor is going to outdo you, you know, mm-hmm. if we're talking about evolution because the strongest survive. But, yeah, so I think it's, it, I think, um, you know, if you, I think that as humans, Humans are beautiful, but humans are also flawed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, looking through some of the Charlotte Mason stuff, mm-hmm. um, where she talks about getting out in nature and mm-hmm. that type of thing, you know, I think that that's, you know, that ha- if you really want to understand true beauty and power, I think that's, to me, that's where you go, you know. I think we had a discussion a while back about Niagara Falls and the first time I went to Niagara yeah. Falls and just being completely overwhelmed with the power and magnitude of the waterfall mm-hmm. just couldn't believe it i absolutely n- have never experienced anything like that and uh, i just i can't imagine anyone walking up to it right and standing because they let you get really close to the water when it's going over the edge and i just can't imagine wow. anyone saying this is not amazing and awesome you know yeah and that it had to have been created that this didn't just absolutely, explode yeah. into being and right yeah absolutely and that this wasn't calculated and follows certain laws and mm-hmm. But, but has that sense of beauty in, in an overwhelming type of way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm thinking to like this atelier method and think of this idea of beauty and order and design and things like that, since I've kind of started teaching that way, I've had, uh, I've been um, a little uh, overwhelmed with the enthusiasm that people have towards it. Students that I've had that have found me and said, signing up for term after term that I mm-hmm. teach and I, like, I don't. I mean, I'm thrilled that they're signing up. But You're like, not what manipulating is them into yeah, doing yeah. it. Like, yeah. What is it? And I really think that in this atelier style is kind of coming back a little bit. But the reason it, that people are drawn to this idea is because it's structured, organized, ordered, designed. You know, you think about we, we talked a little bit about mindfulness. You think about a person's the, the space which that they live in. Right. I mean, when you have a space that you have just cleaned or you've just organized, or you've just tidied up, or whatever. Like it, the stress level instantly comes down mm. compared to mm-hmm. a uh, chaotic, crazy space. Like when my kids have their toys all over the place. You the know. visual clutter. <laughs> right, visual clutter, absolutely. But you know, so there's something about this idea of order and organization, mm-hmm. and it's just that innate wiring that we get from from God mm-hmm. that we're drawn to for some reason. And mm-hmm. I think it's the same type of thing with the beauty, you know. We're just we're 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 drawn to it, and it's something that we just naturally recognize. Yeah, made in the image of God. Yeah, and so we reflect that, but we also appreciate His order in our world. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm pausing the conversation with Cody Wheelock here. We have already talked about his atelier business his experience in a private school setting teaching in their art program 
And we began to touch on the beauty sense, which is a topic in and of itself. So we will explore that later. And in the meantime, I will link to you his Omaha Atelier of Fine Art and his personal website for his work. So you can go check that out in those places. Thank you again for joining me on this show. Stay tuned for more with Cody Wheelock. All right. Talk to you later, guys.